0: Good evening, and welcome to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. Uh, This evening, our show features another one of our doctoral candidates here at Seton Hall uh, who has curated this program, uh, Brian Bosworth, the principal of Katini Regional High School. Joining me also in the studio is my co host, Fran Gavin. Welcome, Fran. Good
1: evening,
2: Tim.
0: All right. Brian, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce our guest and get the conversation rolling.
2: Sure. Thanks, Dr. Fredericks. Um, we're fortunate to have uh, Brian Thomas with us uh, this evening. Brian um, grew up in, uh, in Sussex County. He went to Sparta High School um, where he scored a thousand points and, and was a National Honor Society student and um, went on to uh, to play basketball. Um, in college at the University of Rochester, and uh, had a couple of setbacks there uh, medically that we'll talk about. And then, um, you know, for the past uh, God, I don't know how many years, Brian's been coaching basketball in North Jersey. Um, but really, why why we're speaking with him tonight is he's he's parlayed that coaching into um, working with students in a lot of different areas. And we've been fortunate enough at Kittatinny to have Brian come in and work with uh, a lot most of our grade levels over the past few years. And He's done a lot, of, uh, a lot of workshops with them, three-day workshops, um, where he speaks to both our middle school and high school students on all the challenging things that they face day in and day out, whether it's peer pressure, communication, um, empathy, self-awareness, you know, all the topics that we try to address but um, don't necessarily have a lot of the, the time to dive into those each and every day. Brian's helped us out with that, and um, it's been really effective. So um, with that being said, Brian, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. And I touched on it a little bit, but I guess, you know, if you want to start off, um, just take us through a little bit of your, you know, your academic and athletic background and how that's, how that's really evolved for you into, you know, doing what, what you do and what we've done with you over the past few years.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, as you mentioned, I played basketball all growing up and, and wanted to play in college and was fortunate enough to do so. And I knew I wanted to stay involved with the game somehow some way for the rest of my life, and it turned out I didn't really want to be a, a high school or a college coach because it didn't really allow me the freedom to do what I'm doing now, which is working with kids from all different areas all year round and of course the the interesting part is that you know now that I've been speaking at schools for a number of years, my mom is still surprised because I was a very I was I was a very shy kid growing up and couldn't stand public speaking or the thought of public speaking. And now, even to this day, when I tell my mom I was you know, speaking in school today, she still is kind of uh, gasps and can't believe that I've been able to do that. So but it's it's similar and parallel to the to the coaching that I do on the court albeit in a bit of a different environment, but, you know, kids are kids. And um, I really enjoy both aspects of uh, of what I'm doing
2: nowadays. Excellent. Um, yeah. So I, I, and I think, so let's start with, you know, athletically, I guess some of the things that you went through and I, and I touched on it in the intro, but um, you know, I, so take us through some of the challenges that you faced when you, you know, moved on from Sparta to, to Rochester. And obviously you know, uh, playing basketball was the fun part, but some of the things that happened on <laughs> the court that um, that, you know, allowed you to evolve a little bit there.
3: Yeah, there's quite a few. And, and so I went to the University of Rochester and primarily because, you know, number one, obviously it was a it's a very good school and still is. But my you know, my thing was I wanted to play basketball and I wanted to be able to come in and start right away. And they told me that I was going to be able to do that. And, of course, the the great education was a bonus on top of that. So I did have a really nice freshman year where I started every single game as a freshman. We had a good, successful season, but a typical college kid. I was was very emotional, you know, first year away from home. And as much as I was enjoying the basketball part of it, I wasn't – I was having a bit of a challenging time acclimating to everything overall. My head coach was – um a well renowned coach but if you got if you if you remember back in the day of course Bobby Knight he was a bit of a Bobby Knight disciple so what that means is he was um let's just say not exactly a father figure type of coach if you made a mistake you were going to know about it and you were going to know about it in very uncertain terms and I wasn't really used to that kind of coaching so it it tended to wear on all of us as um as players and as the season went on It became a little bit more of a drag, to be honest with you. I I felt like I was starting to kind of lose my love for the game. So, what I ended up doing was, I ended up transferring after my freshman year. And the first semester of my sophomore year, I ended up at Johns Hopkins down in Baltimore. And, you know, it was a bit of a change of scenery for me. And I was enjoying it for the first, you know, month or so. And I remember it. I remember the date. It was September the 29th. We're playing pickup basketball at the gym. And I come down on a fast break, and I land, and I feel something kind of tweak in my knee, and it felt a little bit awkward. And I limp over to the training room, and I've never had any knee issues whatsoever. And I realized that um, he knew right away that I'd torn my ACL. So, you know, I'm, I'm three and a half weeks into my new environment, my new school. Next thing you know, i laid up, you know, ha- with the prospect of having a surgery that's going to have rehab and physical therapy that's going to last for nine months. Adding insult to injury, I'm at the f I'm on I'm living in this apartment that's on the fourth floor with no elevator. So I'm getting up and down every single day on these on with crutches, on these stairs. I'm kinda isolated, you know, doing my rehab and up on this fourth floor. And I I, I that's when I kinda had a lot of time to think, Brian, where it was like, All right, did I really make the right choice here? I realized that I was kinda missing some of my friends back at Rochester and Um, I I started to think to myself, well, I guess I could go back. But at the same time, that would look really, really silly and like I'm an emotional basket case. And people would be like, what what is this idiot doing, going back and forth and back and forth? And so I finally realized I didn't really care any longer what people thought because I had come to the realization that I probably had made a mistake by leaving So my second semester, I was a sophomore year. I was back at Rochester and I had to swallow a lot of my pride. And, um, you know, I had to look people in the face that I had left beforehand. And it was a bit of adjustment period coming back, but I ended up doing all my rehab and stuff there and, and came back and, and had to acclimate myself back into the next, um, basketball season, which was fine. And then January 4th of my senior year, in the middle of a game, I went backdoor on a cut, and I was going up for a layup, and I came down, and I felt a snap, and it turns out that my other ACL tore. So long story short, because I had missed my sophomore year um, for basketball because of my first ACL, I ended up parlaying that, and I ended up staying for a fifth year. So academically, I kind of stretched out my classes. I ended up rehabbing and coming back. And then my fifth year, I ended up finishing out my college career for basketball and academically because I didn't want to finish my, my basketball career in a, you know, in a in a heap on the floor being carried off as my last moment. So it ended up being very successful and the academics went great. Ended up making all league my, my senior year after my second ACL. So there was just a lot of life lessons in there about really not caring what people think. And, and most importantly, just continuing to pursue what you love with, with a, with a strong work ethic. And I've kind of kept that lesson with me, um, honestly, right to this day.
2: Yeah, no, that's obviously a lot going on, you know, for you there. How, how much did that influence you, um, you know, to really want, I mean, did you want to coach prior to, or did, did, did what you went through really accelerate that process of saying, Hey, I I've been through a lot, and I really want to, you know, help help kids as they're going through things.
3: Well, that's interesting because I, you know, basketball has been in my blood since I was a kid. I've always wanted to, to do something with it, but at the same time, I had I was the type of kid, especially in high school and, of course, in college, where you know, I knew all the custodians over at the high school, so they would let me in all kinds of hours. You know, I would prop the door open, so like I would I would in summertime. I'd work a job until 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night to make some extra money. And then I would, I had the door propped open. And I think the statute of limitations have passed at this point. So I think I'll be okay. But I would prop the door open at the high school and go, you know, work out from 12 to two o'clock in the morning. So I was that type of kid because I loved it so much. I wanted to get better. And I did that every day. You know, I never took any days off, whether it was the weight room or whether it was on court skill stuff. So by the time I was finished with college, I ended up going to, um, to Montclair State, and I was the grad assistant there. And after my couple years there, to be honest with you, it had all kind of caught up to me. And something that I thought would never happen was I found myself needing a bit of a break from basketball. So as much as I love the game, I'd put so much of my heart and soul and energy into it for so long. That I actually stepped back for a little while because I realized I didn't want to be a college coach with everything that that entailed and I didn't see a path that could kind of keep my fire sparked so I was out of the game you know I was still doing a little bit of stuff here and there certainly not like you know what I'm the magnitude of what I'm doing today but that time away rekindled my fire for getting back into it you know a number of years later and i I've, I've never lost it since and so I think that having that time away and having that perspective and missing it was able to, and obviously just life stuff and getting a little bit older and having some perspective and realizing that, you know, your passion is your passion and you can't really get away from it, even if you try. And, um, you know, I've been full steam ahead ever since then
2: there's, uh, you know, anybody who's, who's coached or, or had experience with it, you know, there's really, there's two types of coaching, but it goes hand in hand. There's the, there's the X's and O's, you know, the, the skills piece of it, but there, there's also the huge mental yes. piece of it. And I think, you know, you, you started with your, um, you know, with, with BT basketball and all the work that you've done with, um, with student athletes. When was it, like, when, when you were going through the process of developing BT basketball and working with the kids through all the different clinics and all your teams and everything that you've done, um, was there ever a point, like, did you get into it? with the X's and O's part and the, and the, the mental part evolved from that or was it always a combination of both? Like, was there that moment that you said to yourself, Whoa, there's a need for, you know, looking at it work.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's, um, it was always kind of a little bit of both for me because obviously the mental and emotional side of the game, especially, so I'll take you back to college. So especially when I was in college that after that first ACL, so it would have been, I guess, my junior years when I would have come back after that. That year was a real struggle for me because coming off an ACL, you know, it's an, at the time it was a nine-month rehab. And then trying to acclimate myself back into the team um, and just playing in general, I wasn't really myself. I didn't have the, the same explosion, the same quickness as I had had previously. It just hadn't come back to me yet. And it was an extremely frustrating time for me because I went from, like I said, starting every game as a freshman to coming off the bench and not really performing all that well. So I was really down on myself. My confidence was down and so much of my identity was as me of me as a basketball player. So I think, I think just my, my self-esteem took a hit overall as well. Um, and that was a real challenge for me, but also eye-opening to realize that there's such a mental and emotional part of, of athletics in general, but specifically basketball, because that's what I was into. And I had to find my way out of that. I just had to, I had to outwork it. I had to keep playing. I had to keep working with the confidence that I would get it back, um, which I eventually did. And then of course, you know, not too long after that, I tore the second one. But once I tore the second one, I knew that The rehab would be faster because I had already been down that road and I knew I knew what to expect. So my physical therapy for the second one was only six months instead of nine. And I recovered much faster. I never even put a brace on um, in my second rehab because I didn't want the mental and emotional crutch. So I I knew that I was learning from um, that mental and emotional standpoint from the first time that I did it. So that was a real eye opener for me that like, yeah, you could be you could work on your jump shot and your and your dribbling skills and everything else. But if you're not working on the emotional and mental side of it, there's a whole nother aspect that you're missing. So I've tried to incorporate that, you know, for for many, many years now that, you know, if if you don't have a good attitude on the court, you know, if you don't have confidence in your shot if you don't have confidence in your teammate, if you're, if you're always yelling and screaming at your teammates, if you're all be, always being negative and coming down on your teammates, all these things, all these intangibles matter. And, um, you know, we talk. I've always talked about that stuff with our kids, but I think we talk about probably now more than ever that, to your point, there's, there's the physical side of the game, but there's the mental and emotional side. And the kids that really get that can overcome a lack of talent that they may have. And then the ones that do have a lot of talent can really get to uh, really an entirely different stratosphere if they combine all of those aspects.
2: Oh, definitely, no doubt. And I think those are the things that, you know, we always talk about in education, right? And I've said it numerous times, good teaching is coaching, right? So, you know, we're looking yes. at it from the, from the athletic standpoint, but I think a lot of the the approach that you take, any coach takes, is what you do in the classroom also, which is, you know why a lot of teachers, and and obviously there's other reasons too, but why a lot of teachers also are coaching. Um, you know, yeah, it's the hours line up and everything else, but I do think that there's a lot of those skills that teaching and coaching are really one and the same.
3: Oh, I I, I agree a hundred percent. Like you said, I mean, um, you know, the, the court's a little bit different than the classroom, but at the same time, you're still dealing with kids. You still have to understand how to communicate best with kids and as you well know, you know as you get a little bit older that that changes because you know the age gap is different, you can't relate sometimes as well so you have to find ways, you know, to still be relatable to the kids so you can communicate with them in, in a proper fashion and I'm sure it's exactly the same way in the classroom because it's certainly that way um, on the court because if you can't if you can't get to the kids and, you know, get through their ears, and they're not going to listen to you anyway. You know, if you don't have something substantial to say or or any way to to communicate that message properly, it's really going to go in one ear and out the other. So I think that's a very valuable asset to have is to be able to just relate to the kids on some sort of level so they can drop their wall, so they can actually hear what you're saying, so they can learn, so then they can improve on the things that, that they need to improve upon. I agree with you 100%.
2: So when was that moment that you said to yourself, "Hey, I could take what I'm doing on the court, um, you know, in my, in uh, in what I do basketball wise, and really reach a bigger audience by, you know, getting into getting into schools." Like, what was there like one moment that that stands out to you?
3: I don't think there was necessarily one moment. I think it was just an accumulation of of the perspective of all of this coaching and 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 like you're saying, how can I. How can I actually reach more people that are not at? So so looking at it through almost like a pinhole is I have these kids, but these are strictly basketball players. But of course, there's many, many other kids out there that I will never be able to reach because they don't play basketball. So how do we get to all these other kids that are not even athletes in general? And it started, you know, that, that's where it really stemmed from and of course you know you get into the schools and you got you know kids of all walks of life athletes non-athletes musicians not non-musicians actors i mean literally everything and that was a way where it was okay well it's the same basic type of message but now we can even delve a little bit deeper into some extra intangibles and you know if we can get in front of all the kids instead of just the basketball players or just the athletes or whatever the case may be. And now you can reach kids on a much larger scale. And and that's really, that's, that's really been the goal ever since.
2: Definitely. No. And I think we've seen that, um, you know, obviously here at Kid with you, um, you know, as you've been here, we've seen the message get across to uh, all, all types of students. You know, it hasn't just been athletes. In fact, we've had so many conversations with, um, you know, with students, like you said, who have been in the theater or the plays and, you know, and, and it's made an impact with them as well.
1: Well, oh, yeah. just, uh, Well, you know, let, let's inter- interrupt for a second. This is a great opportunity to take a quick break. Uh, we can get right back to what we're talking about. Uh, you're listening to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University.
0: And welcome back to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. Here in the studio with my co-host, Fran Gavin, I'm Tim Fredericks, and uh, our doctoral student curating the show this evening is Brian Bosworth, uh, the principal of Kittatinny High School, and his very special guest, uh, uh, Brian Thomas. So Brian, or both Bryans, we'll turn it back over to you.
2: Sure. Thanks, Tim. Um, I think you know, what we were talking about was really that transition into schools. And I know a lot of the conversation so far is, um, you know, talked about basketball, but I think that's a good lead into um, the bigger audience that we've tried to address here at Ketateni because, again, Brian's worked with um, entire grades. So it's not just a select group. It's really um, across all grades and the feedback from all of the students has been so positive. So, Brian, I think in looking at it, you know, when you first came in here, Um, and we were really in the infancy stages of developing these types of programs. What were some of the things that you were looking to, you know, accomplish and how did, how did these three-day workshops, how did you develop them? Like, how did they come to, come to fruition?
3: Well, truthfully, it was, it's, it started by, it did stem from some basketball stuff and just thinking about how I coach in general and what principles um, can be related not just to basketball players but you know to to the youth to kids across the board and you know and you and I had spoken about this even back in the summer when we were getting ready to to go into the school for this fall is okay well it 's kind of it 's kind of keeping your eye on what 's happening here and now because obviously so much has changed in the last handful of years and it 's the things that we talked about truthfully, pre-COVID are, are a little bit different than we talk about now because the kids went through so much change and went through so many different things that they nor we had experienced. So, you know, we've been able to add some things to the program that were not there previously just based on need of the kids. Um, so that's been, I think, really, really important is to not have you know, a program from five years ago and it's the same exact program that it is now. I think being able to evolve the program to meet the needs, you know, just like if we were talking about, I mean, obviously leadership principles remain the same, but I think the nuances of those things and making it relatable to what these kids are dealing with in real time in today's day and age makes just a massive difference. You know, we're not going to, we're going to, we, we, we may talk about the same concepts that. You know, applied thirty years ago, but we're gonna talk about them maybe with some different language and in a different fashion than we would have thirty years ago you know because because things are different so just keeping our 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 finger on the pulse of what the kids are going through currently has been able to lead to okay well let's let's move this part of it out let's let's diminish this part, but let's also add. Um, a couple extra chapters here that we can elaborate on that I think the kids would really benefit from. And truthfully, when I'm when I'm speaking to the kids, and I'll even ask sometimes when I'm at my my practices, I'll run it by the kids because it's one thing for you know you and I from our perspective to say the kids need X, Y, and Z, but it's another thing to present it to the actual kids and say, hey, you know, is this something that you think? would be worth talking about? Would this resonate with you? And, some, and, and sometimes they say, yeah, this would be good, but maybe not so much this there. So it's a combination of, of speaking to someone like yourself who has a, a big picture view and then, and then literally sometimes asking the kids, hey, is this something you wanna, you'd be interested in talking about or learning about or you know elaborating on? So I think that combination of all those things leads to you know, the, the, the prog- program that we're, we're currently working with, and I'm sure it will continue to evolve from here.
2: Sure, and just for some background, so we typically have um, Brian come and speak to our phys ed classes, and sometimes we'll merge them so the groups can be anywhere from 15 students to um, to 40 students, depending on the period and, and how we're looking. Um, Brian, take us through like a uh, just an overview of a typical three day workshop. You know what the workshop looks like from the first day when you meet the students until that you know when the bell rings on that last period. Um, you know, what are, what do those workshops look like?
3: Yeah. So the first day, obviously, you know, day one, we're I'm really just trying to get the kids to drop their walls. So they're, they will hear what I'm actually going to say over the next three days. I'm very much, Brian, as you know, I'm very much not giving a speech and I literally say this to the kids. I said, <laughs> I try to get to know as many names as possible right out of the gate. So it becomes more personal. So I get to know them a little bit. So, um, they realize that I'm I'm there to have a conversation with them. I'm not a guy coming in to give a speech, which is a different perspective overall and a different way of thinking about it. So a lot of the first day is just getting to know the kids. And and we kind of start out by asking some questions and, and learning a little bit more about them. I give just a very brief background about myself. And depending upon what grade level, the topics may be a little bit different. Just start to Right away, we really start to get them to think about how much their thoughts influence the actions that they take. And it's the number one thing that they can control is what thoughts they decide to act on. And of course, at that age, that is going to be everything because so many thoughts that are acted on are, you know, based on emotions at that age and, you know, trying to get them to understand that they do have a measure of control over those types of things. So it really is, I ask a lot of questions. I tell them the more that they volunteer answers. The more fun this is going to be, the more laid back this is going to be. I'd make it very clear that I'm not one of their teachers um, and I'm not going to call on you if you don't want to be called on. So so my whole goal, day one, like I said, really within the first five minutes is just drop walls. We're going to have a good time. We're going to talk about some challenging things, but you're not going to be called on if you don't want to be called on. And if you do that's going to be great. I think it's going to lead to, um, you know, a lot more introspection and a lot more fun for everybody. So whether the first day is more about, you know, some self-awareness type of stuff. Um, And then I always show a video or two that I think the kids can relate to that they tend to enjoy. I get them up for um, activities that are interactive. So they're not just sitting there the whole time, you know, (laughs) falling asleep, drooling all over themselves, that type of thing. So we, we we mix it up. So it's interactive. So we got a couple videos each day. So it keeps them on their toes. So they're not just sitting there listening to me talk. I don't I don't think that's an overly effective way to present these types of topics. And each day, like I said, whether it's and, and as you mentioned, whether it's communication, whether it's kindness, whether it's peer pressure. We talk about uh, the difference between empathy and sympathy. And again, there's there's um, there's activities that demonstrate all of these intangible leadership types of things. And I let them know, hey, this stuff is going to be helpful for you, helpful for you in any area of life, whether you play um, an instrument, whether you are an actor or an actress, whether you play sports, you know, whatever your interests are. These are going to help you with your relationships, with your family, with your friends, with your coaches, with your teachers. If you learn how to be a really good communicator, it's going to be vital, and you can really even outperform people with more talent than you if you if you understand people skills and understand how to really effectively communicate with people. So ultimately, by the time we're finished our three days, um, oftentimes the kids are, are sad that that the program is over because – They've been able to open up and they've been able to, to feel that they've been in a space where they can be open and honest about questions, quite frankly, that can be challenging and that they don't really hear that, that are spoken about um, all that much. So by the time we're wrapped up, they feel like at least, at least it's, it's, it's my goal. They feel like that they've got something out of it and they can take these different intangibles and use them in all areas of their life, which is always the goal.
2: At Kittatinny, we're you know we're a little different. We're the only seven through twelve school in Sussex County, so um, we had spoken about creating a program for the middle school and a program for the high school, and some of the things that we hashed out and some of the different approaches that we had to look at um, with a twelve or thirteen year old kid versus a seventeen or eighteen year old kid. Take us through some of the differences that you know in the pro in your program. Um, for instance, we just did our seventh grade and our eleventh grade. So some of the differences between the two programs and what you focused on with the middle school students versus the high school students. Yeah,
3: without a doubt. Now, some of the some of the things are the same, you know, um, empathy, sympathy, communication. You know, your thoughts lead to your actions. But of course, with the older kids, we can delve a little bit deeper and not keep it, um, you know, quite as surface level as we would say the seventh graders or the eighth graders. So that's that's number one. Number two, we're able to do a little bit more in terms of, you know, for example, as you know, with, with with your juniors recently, we talked a little bit more about getting out of your comfort zone. We talked a little bit more in depth about fear, anxiety, nerves, you know, why you feel this way, what you're afraid of, you know, the consequences of those things. Um, a lot more about peer pressure, uh, because they understand, you know, the the positives and negatives of peer pressure at at that age as being juniors, much better you know, than than 7th and 8th graders because they've now gone through it and are sometimes really smack dab in the middle of it. And then the last day, especially as the biggest change, I think, Bryce, is that we start to kind of project towards the future and um, we kind of tie it all into, okay, how how is how is this new perspective and your decisions going to affect you long term? Whereas 7th graders are not really looking – very much long term. They're looking for, you know, what they're doing in their next class. And juniors are now starting to think about, you know, do I want to go to college? Do I not want to go to college? And how to handle all these decisions and how to make these decisions as best they can without being so um, concerned with what everybody else thinks and what everybody else wants them to do instead you know, one of the biggest takeaways is 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 really understanding. It's important for you to do what you want to do, you know, without feeling that pressure from others, without feeling this huge, massive fear of making such a a wrong decision. Because the reality is, you you know, they, they sometimes don't realize that hey, if you make a wrong decision, you could always change it. You know, these kids tend to think they're so locked into whatever choice they make. You know, I let them know I. I always ask them, how many of you guys know what you want to do with the rest of your life? And keep in mind, these are, you know, 16 and 17-year-olds. And some kids raise their hand and some kids don't. And I tell them, "I, I think it's often silly that we require these kids to make a decision on what they want to do with the rest of their life at 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. Because it's a really hard question to ask. I didn't have a clue at that age. Not a clue. I knew, like I said, I knew I wanted to stay in basketball, but... I didn't know in what capacity. And I tell them, you know, I got a psychology degree because it was the most general degree that I could get because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I thought it could apply to many, many facets, and I found it to be interesting. But, again, one of the biggest things with the juniors that we try to, to, to get across is you, you make the best decisions, decisions that you can, and then you deal with the consequences. And if it's not a great decision for you, guess what? You can make another decision. You know, this is not the final, you know, end of the game. This, this, this is going to be a long game that you're not going to, you're not going to live or play perfectly. And hopefully you can learn from your mistakes and that's how you, you learn to succeed and go from there.
2: One of the topics that we've always talked about, and I think anytime you talk to students or people when they're talking about high school students, um, one of the topics that's really changed over the last oh guy, I mean, even over a decade has been communication and, um, that's exists for so many different reasons, whether it's cell phones, whether it's social media. Uh, You know, we see it day in and day out. Kids are walking around the halls, you know, with their heads down and on their cell phones and, um, you know, ear pods in and the whole thing uh, and then exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, What's your what's the feedback that you've seen? And I know that you dive into that whole communication element in your workshops, but Do you think the students are aware of some of the communication issues that they have or how much it's changed? Like, what's some of the feedback that you get from them?
3: I think they are aware. I I think these kids are are much more, oftentimes, much more self-aware than we give them credit for. I think they know, for the most part, exactly what they're doing and how, and maybe not exactly how it's affecting them. But I think they are aware of that because, like, I'll show a video where there's this one woman who's on her phone the entire time, and she's she's looking around and there's other it, it's an animated 2 minute film it's very short but she's looking around and these other people um they're invisible but they're holding their phones and she's not really sure what's happening here but she she's on her phone almost the entire time too even though she's sitting next to you know what's probably her husband and she looks down at the at the camera of her phone so she sees a reflection she realizes that she is invisible also so, of course, the point is, you know, we spend so much time on our phone that we're ignoring everybody else around us. So, you know, the first question I ask when the video is over is, hey, you know, how many people have been one of the people, the surrounding characters in this in this film where, you know, you're trying to communicate with somebody, but they're on their phone and they all raise their hand because we've all been in that position. But I say, OK, but let's hearken back to day one where you have to understand that there's only one person you can change and it's yourself and you're not going to be able to change anybody else. And we're taking a trip. Inwards over these three days and I said so the real question is how many of you have been the person who's the main character in the video where you're the one not really communicating with other people and you're on your phone the whole time and of course some of them raise their hand because they don't want to admit it until I kind of poke and prod a little bit and then they're all like okay yeah that's that's me too that's everybody we've all done that so I think they realize you know and and we've all done I said look I I do it as an adult you know it's something that I still got to work on as well but we go through we go through an activity that opens their eyes a little bit and then we start to talk about you know why it's important to be a good active listener um not just you know for you to your friends but um you know to whoever it may be to coaches to parents you know whether it's eye contact whether it's body language whether it's not interrupting whether it's um you know asking good questions nodding your head you know smiling a little bit all these different things that these kids tend to not always remember because they're spent so much time, you know, staring into their phone. And then they're all, you know, they all realize Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense. You always get a lot of head nods and always get a lot of, you know, especially when I tell them again, you know, you're, you're in, if you're in a job interview and you pick up a phone call in the middle of that job interview, or you're always staring off into the distance or if you're slouched over and you got your arms folded. I mean, these are all signals that, You're probably not that interested in being there and you're probably not going to get that job. So, you know, when you put it like that, they tend to open their eyes a little bit. And I say, "Okay." but when your best friend is going through some stuff and really needs a friend and you're constantly on your phone and not paying attention, you're kind of telling your best friend that you don't really care about their issues. So I kind of try to do my best to break it down from a, a, a larger perspective, but also a bit more of a micro, you know, one on one perspective as well and you know you kind of hope they take to that.
2: And I always find it interesting too when you're setting up the workshops and you know most of the students tend to come in in their little groups or their clicks and typically yeah. by midway through you know with some of the activities you're doing you're watching the students communicate with kids that they may have never communicated with before you know I, and I don't know if you've seen that also.
3: Yeah there's no question and there's actually when I have the time for it The third day, I talk about getting out of your comfort zone, and as we wrap up within the last five minutes, I have them do an activity. I say, look, I need you guys to stand up for me, and I need you to find something, find somebody that you don't really know or have never met, and I just simply want you to go and introduce yourself to that person. And some of them, like, cringe right away, you know, because that's so horrifying to think about. And then when they do it, they realize, hey, that wasn't that bad. I overcame a small fear of mine. And, um, you know, maybe who knows, maybe you made a new friend, but you realize that it wasn't the hardest thing in the world. You're still breathing. You're still alive. Everything's okay. And getting out of your comfort zone leads to a lot of really great things. So, yeah, it's pretty amazing to see that as the three days um, really go on.
2: And especially because in a lot of cases they wouldn't. You know, if they're on their phones all the time. They're not even thinking about engaging with some of those other students.
3: Oh, not at all. Not at all. And until until they're forced to, and then they realize exactly. that we have a lot more in common than maybe we thought, and then it gets maybe it gets easier the next day in the hallway to give a, a head nod or a wave, you know? So hopefully it helps them big picture-wise.
2: Oh, no doubt. And I think you see that, you know, especially as the students leave. On that third day, I think you do see some of those walls that have been broken down in in those cases.
1: This has been a very fascinating conversation so far. It's a good opportunity to take a break. You're listening to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University.
0: And welcome back to Leadership Matters on WMTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. Uh, together with my co-host and studio this evening, Fran Gavin, uh, we welcome Brian Bosworth, principal at Cape tinney Regional High School, along with his very special guest, Brian Thomas. And I will just throw it right back to the Bryans uh, to continue the conversation.
2: Thanks, Dr. Fredericks. Um, yeah, so when we were talking, you know, one of the nice things that has been, in working with Brian, I think is that um, we've had, we had a relationship prior to the pandemic. And Brian, I know, you know, we obviously had some of the workshops um, in place a few years ago. And I think you have a unique perspective because obviously through the pandemic, a lot of what took place, you know, not only with learning loss, but also um, the big buzzword was SEL, right? Social emotional learning and um, everything that we're looking at with to try to help the students um, overcome the challenges that they face now and the challenges that they had you know, during, the, during the pandemic of being home, being isolated, not being in school, not being with their friends. Um, you have the unique perspective because you were running SEO workshops prior to the pandemic and then post-pandemic. Um, what are some of the things that you've seen you know, with the students? Have you seen a lot of change? Have you seen a different need? What, like, what did the pandemic do? Uh, In terms of things that you feel that you have to address.
3: I think the biggest one, Brian, is is what we just talked about is simply communication because these kids spent so much time at home, um, you know, learning on their phone or on their laptop away from from other kids and just not having that social aspect of their lives. You know, it was taken away for a, you know a pretty a pretty substantial chunk of time, especially when you consider you know the time period in some of these kids' lives. But I will tell you this: I've been amazed at um, the resiliency and the bounce back. Because I, I think I, I think I probably noticed it more last winter, as uh, things were still a little bit not totally back to normal, and maybe into the spring. But especially being with your kids this fall, I didn't even think about it. The socialization seemed to be back on track. The communication, as we talked about, you know, outside of, you know, um, aspects that, that we just discussed. I think they really found a way to bounce back and, and to, to get back to what seems to be much more normal times. I mean, they're able to interact with each other more. They're, they're able to, you know, obviously their sports are back. Their extracurricular activities are back. So I've, I've just been impressed overall with how these kids now are back to seemingly just being kids. I mean, they have their their own stuff to deal with, but it seems to be that it's simply stuff that kids deal with as opposed to, you know, it still seems to be a hangover, you know, from all the stuff that when they were home. And I'm sure there's still a lot of that, but simply from my perspective, um, there's, and I'll tell you how I know this. When we first came back after COVID, there was a little bit more, I don't want to I think babysitting is a is a strong word but at the same time you know there was a little bit more getting kids to pay attention type stuff instead of actually you know being able to deliver the content smoothly whereas this fall I think there's been a lot less of that because they're they're used to being back in school and they're and they're they're used to that kind of classroom setting and I think to be honest with you they're maybe a little bit more ready to hear the message of some of the things that we're talking about um, which I think has, has, has resonated and
2: helped as well. Oh, no doubt. And I think, you know, every time that we look at it, you always see, um, you know, you, you never know when you're making an impact, but I think there have been a couple of instances that we've seen over the over the last few weeks where, you know, you do have those success stories. And, you know, obviously there was one student that came up to you and, you know, was able to open up to you. And then we were able to talk to that student, and really engage with that student. Right. You know, can you give us some, some examples of some other success stories or just kind of, conversations that you've had with kids um, either during the workshops or after the workshops that have been like those those aha moments or those you know light bulb moments
3: yeah it's you're right you never know what kind of impact you're making I mean you do your best and you hope that the message is getting through some kids it's really obvious they're they're engaged they're shaking their head They're raising their hand. They're volunteering. They're giving really deep, insightful answers, even like seventh and eighth graders who you think never give deep and insightful answers. Next thing you know, they're doing the same thing. And um, you realize that, okay, the message is getting through. And then there's some kids that do have their arms folded and are slouched and have their hoodie on or have a hat on. And it looks like they're not interested at all. And then you'll have one of those kids that'll come up to you after the three days And he'll say something about, you know, what he or she got out of it. And you'll just be blown away because I'm thinking to myself, I didn't think you were paying attention the entire time. I didn't think you heard a word that I said. So you never really know. But it often does happen where you'll have a kid come up to you afterwards and say, you know, I know it seemed like I wasn't really all that into this. But this part of this, you really spoke to me. And it's something that I think, you know, helped me out quite a bit. And then you realize, okay, well it's not my job to figure out or it's not my job to um, you know figure out exactly who's going to hear what message it's my job to deliver the message and you know like some kids, when we go through empathy, they may totally tune out, but there's other kids that that may be the number one thing that they're listening to, whereas another kid may when we talk about peer pressure, that may be the number one thing that they're listening to, and then maybe another kid tunes out a little bit, so you don't know at all, and sometimes you won't ever know but it's getting those, even a message afterwards, um, or like you said, a kid coming up to you afterwards and explaining, Hey, I'm going through this at home. And, and what you talked about with this particular topic, you know, really, really struck a nerve with me and I'm going to try it. And, um, the the best part though, is when I tell people, when I tell the the students, Hey, this is our last day. And a lot of them will, will let out a, a bit of a groan. So I'm like, all right, that's good. So you want me to come back? You know, it's not like they're saying, they're, they're, they're clapping and like, all right, this is the last day. Get this guy <laughs> out of here. I want to go back to class. So that's always a good feeling when they're sad that our time is over. And that's, that's the biggest thing. Because if they're enjoying our time that we're having together, that means that they're engaged and they're listening to what you're saying, even though sometimes it may, it may
2: not seem that way. Have, have there been any? Have there been an, oh, I'm sorry. Good.
1: I, I just I wanted to pick up on a point that uh, that, that I kind of drawn out of this. So, and it kind of ties in, Brian, with your your basketball experience in college. Um, kids today, I think, uh, struggle from two items. At least that's been my experience. They they have this fear of failure, and the other side of that coin is uh, kids really struggle with this concept of resiliency, which you obviously demonstrated in in. in great degree uh, in your college situation so I'm, I'm wondering to what extent is this concept of fear of failure and resilience the ability to fight over challenges and difficulties part of the program that you kind of uh, bring to these kids
3: yeah that's a that's a lot of really good insight right there regarding the fear i, I literally will you know we'll We'll do some activities that will ask who is fearful of, of certain things. And, and they all, um, almost all of them raise their hand or volunteer about what they're fear, fearful about. And a lot of it comes down to they're fearful of either um, the failure, as you mentioned, of being judged by their peers, of making the wrong decisions. And we and we tackle each one of those. But the failure, especially, I, I let them know, I, you know, I, I ask them. How many of you play sports or how many of you play an instrument, you know, specifically? And somebody raised their hand. Yeah, I I play guitar. I say, okay. um, when you started playing guitar five years ago, how good were you? And they all say, no, I was terrible. I had no idea what I was doing. I say, okay, five years later, are you better or worse? And to a T, of course, they say I'm better. And I say, did you make a whole lot of mistakes in these last five years? And they say, oh, my goodness, I, I can't even count how many mistakes I said. Well, that's how you succeed. I said, the only way you can really actually fail is if you stop trying. And, you know, some things that maybe you don't want to do, that's fine. You know, you stop doing it and you move on. But things you really love and you want to get better at, you, and I use a basketball example, I say, you know, the only way to get good at really good at shooting the basketball is by missing hundreds and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of shots. And that's how you get really good at making the shot is by making a lot of, uh, a lot of mistakes. And that starts to resonate because a lot of them play sports and a lot of them play an instrument or whatever it is that they're um, that they're good at, or they enjoy doing. So that tends to open their eyes a little bit and to realize that, okay, the failure isn't final unless I stop. And that's where, to your point, the resiliency part of it comes into play that, all right, you, you almost got to get really good at failing, and and embracing failure and almost not trying to fail but realizing that okay I missed the shot if I if I miss the first jump shot I ever took and then I stopped forever I'm obviously not going to be good at chewing the jump shot you know or whatever sport that it may be so helping them to understand that part of it that that tends to that tends to open their eyes because they've been through it already this isn't just me telling them they've been through it like they've started a new subject and it was literally almost like a foreign language. And then a few months later, they were much better at it. The instrument, they're much better at it. You know, we had a, a an example recently of horseback riding, you know, and they were terrible to start and then they're much better at it. So it applies a- across really every avenue. And at that age, even seventh graders, they've they've already done enough where they have personal experience of where they started out and they weren't good and then they failed and then they got better. But they tend to forget that they got better because of their failures. And and once they look back at it, they start to realize it. Um, So hopefully they can, they can embrace it and look at it from a totally different perspective moving
2: forward. Right. Have there been any big surprises? Like as you go through this, is there anything that jumps out at you of things that either caught you off guard or, um, you know, was not what you were expecting as, as you were delivering some of these workshops?
3: Um, nothing crazy. I mean, every now and then you'll get some kids that that just they they tend to want to be, um, you know, a bit of. You can always kind of point out the class clowns, and they and you know we all kind of know why they're doing that from from the top down. And I'll I'll do my best to diffuse that right away. And I I don't get angry at stuff like that. I'll kind of play along and, and diffuse it. Um, in a pretty nonchalant way where I let them know it's not going to bother me. And if they they know that what they're doing is not going to bother me, they tend to stop doing it pretty quickly because usually when they're doing, you know, when kids are doing something like that, the whole purpose of it is to get a rise out of, you know, the quote authority figure. So my whole perspective is if I don't, if they don't get a rise out of me, then, you know, they'll stop doing it, which is usually what happens. But the second part of that, you know that kind of leans a little bit negative, but the the part that always blows me away, and is still surprising, is the insight into a lot of these kids' answers that they give. Where you know you you look at them, you're like, oh, they're just kids and they're uh, they're, they're a bunch of knuckleheads, and then they they answer this question, you know, that's a the, a deep insightful question, and they give an even deeper and insightful answer that seems to belie their 13 14 15 16 17 years on earth you're like are you sure you're that age cuz that sounded like something a 40 year old would say so that's that always is eye opening to me and it tends that tends to catch me off guard in in a great way that hey you know these we we tend to not give these kids as much credit um as they sometimes sometimes of course deserve for, you know, knowing more than, than we, we, we tend to, they tend to let on and
2: and that's always a pleasant surprise. Uh, Most definitely. Um, Taking this all into account, you know, and and we've talked about the evolution of the, of the program, so to speak, how do you see this, you know, your program evolving, you know, over the the course of whether it's this year, next year, you know, future years, like how how do you see the evolution of this?
3: Well, that's an interesting question. I, I think, what we spoke about earlier, I think the topics, you know, leadership topics remain the same, you know, whether it's a communication, whether it's empathy. I mean, empathy has been, I, I, I tend to spend a little extra time on empathy because we talk about how I ask them a very obvious question. I say, "Hey, do you guys think that high school is a is a fairly judgmental environment?" And they all they all kind of start laughing because it's <laughs> it's it's such an obvious answer. And I say, and I let them know that's where that's our introduction into our empathy talk because you know empathy is lacking. And people say, "Oh, empathy is lacking more than more than ever in, in young kids." But I don't know. I mean, when we were kids, I don't think we had a lot of empathy either. I, I think it I think it just tends to be the age. You know, I don't think social media helps all that much, for sure. But not everything is social media's fault, although it is to blame for a fair amount of things. But, but anyway, I, I think a lot of these things will always be in vogue. Some of the things that we talked about, but it's a matter of, okay, you know, what 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 is happening in the world today? What is happening with these kids that needs to be talked about a little bit more? So it's again, it's going back to what we talked about: is keeping our hand on the pulse and maybe you get a particular class, I mean, this happens often as well, where I can tell they're a little bit more empathetic than another class, just the, dy- the way the dynamics work. So in that sense, I might talk less on the dynamic, um, I'm sorry, on the uh, empathetic standpoint, that particular class, and then I might, you know, elongate peer pressure, if that's what they're really into. So even on a day-to-day basis, the program can change a little bit because the dynamic of the class and the personalities of the class um, are obviously different in every class. So I, I, I think that's the biggest thing is keeping an eye on the more micro standpoint of it, not sticking to, okay, I got to get through X, Y, Z today, and then Wednesday and then Thursday, and it's all got to get done and finished. I try to be um, a, little more, a little more lenient in the sense that I, I, I'll even skip a topic if this topic is really pressing some buttons with these kids. I'll go as long as, it, as I feel it, it needs to until that topic is exhausted and going from there. So I, I think it's more on a small picture scale as opposed to, you know, having massive changes on a large picture scale.
2: So I know we have uh, about two minutes left, but I wanted to bring this full circle um, as we wrap up. How has working in the schools um, changed if it has your coaching?
3: Great question. And I think the first word that that came to mind for me was one of the topics we talk about is empathy, is doing my best to put myself in their shoes as hard as it is as I get older. But when they come to practice, realizing that maybe this kid had a rough day at school, maybe that's why he's moping, maybe that's why his attitude is down, maybe that's why he doesn't seem like he's trying as hard. So trying to understand or or trying to communicate with that kid and let them know I'm here for you. And if there's anything that I can do to help, and instead of just getting on that kid because he's not performing well, maybe taking him aside and and finding out what the reasoning is as far as why he's acting different or why he's not performing as well or why his behavior has changed a little bit. So I I think that would be the biggest thing is realizing that these kids at that age, man, you got a lot going on. Inside there's so many emotions flying around there's so much of everything flying around and it's a very confusing time and i I try to do my best and it's not easy of understanding that um you know their life is a lot more than than just a couple hours of basketball practice and um, letting them know that hey it's more than basketball and if you need to talk I'm here
2: oh absolutely and I think like you said you know it in working with them, I think you probably it's probably a two way street, right? You see it both ends, the, the coaching part and working with the students on the court um, formulates a little bit of what goes on in the workshops and then vice versa.
3: Oh, yeah, for sure. There's no doubt. I can take some some aspects of the class and, and move it over to the court and then take some aspects of the court and move it over to the class pretty seamlessly, because, like, as you mentioned at the top, the teaching and the coaching, very, very similar. And I'm, I'm fortunate to be in both positions at the moment.
2: Yeah, no, that's great. So, so, you know, bottom line is you love it, right? You love working with the kids. I love it. You. I yeah. love it.
3: It's a huge passion of mine that I hope I can continue for many years to come.
2: No, no doubt. And we always appreciate it. You know, the work that you've done with our students has been tremendous. And like I said, we, um, just the feedback that we get, and the hard part is, you know, when you're doing, whether you're teaching or coaching, it's difficult sometimes to know when that pays off, you know, but um, obviously we've we've spoken with our teachers and our students here, and a lot of the work that you've done with our kids has really paid off.
3: Awesome. Thank you so much, and I always appreciate the opportunity to speak to your kids. It's, uh, it, it means a whole lot to me, that's for sure.
1: Well, this has been a fascinating conversation that Brian Bosworth, you've brought to us with our special guest, Brian Thomas, um, and uh, we appreciate the uh, insights that, uh, Brian, you've brought to us, both Brians, uh, on behalf of my co-host, Tim Fredericks. This is Fran Gavin. You've been listening to Leadership Matters on NT, uh, WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University.